Okay, we're here with Matt Taylor, who's an innovation farmer with Beef and Lamb New Zealand, um, based at Lawn Peak. So, uh, Matt, firstly, I was just going to ask you if you can tell us a little bit about um, Lawn Peak, uh, a little, a little of the history, and uh, and up until uh, the last sort of five years, and then we'll cover that as, as the, in the next shot. Yeah. Um, well, we're it's a high country place, family farm that Granddad came up to, and traditionally it's been run reasonably traditionally with half bred ewes and cows, with the majority of stock going off a store. Um, probably quite late, and there's always been development going on, but lagging behind other places, neighbouring places. So, um, and then in the last 20 years, we were lucky enough that we had a dairy farmer come to. Dad and Dad had the foresight to take him up on his offer. Um, so that's developed a lot of the, the the flat country. And then probably again 10 years ago, um, Dad had the foresight to, his time was up and farm succession happened. and um, So it was passed over to me and me and Shona come uh, at that stage. Um, so probably at that stage we... There was some yeah, lambing percentage and profitability was pretty pretty average. Um, and I was told, you know, by the banker that he had concerns about us. We had lots of equity, but just profitability wasn't there. Um, so first couple of years, we, we farmed reasonably traditionally in store lamb sales, and we had pretty good run, I think, um, $90 from memory. And then we had a dry year, and we had a really good lambing percentage, and we had at that stage, 10 years ago, our lambing percentage was around about 80. And then I think two years later, we got up to 100 and we had extra lambs to sell. But then we got really dry and um, Richie gave them away to Canterbury for $50, I think it was. So we kind of, the first couple of years, we thought we were going the right direction. And then we, the next couple of years, just climate related, we, we went backwards. So... Um, so perhaps tell us about that kind of the thought processes at that stage. So you had a bad year or bad two years, and what was going through your mind at that stage? Yeah, uh, you probably oh well, you start digging yourself a hole, and then you become very reactive, and this yeah. Was it was there anything in particular that that actually you got to a, a point where you said this has got to change, or did you have that sort of aha moment at all? Yeah, it was probably at that. When we had a store lamb sale, and you usually have a few beers afterwards, the agents, and one of the agents said, "Oh shit, this you know, it's a hard property. You'll never do any good here. You you really need to sell up, and you know, there's easier places to make a dollar than this, and." That was probably that, you know, um, yeah, something really had, you know, that really kind of said to me, oh, shit, I'm going to prove you wrong. I knew there was potential in the place, but we just weren't there. So how did you go about change from that point? If that's the point that sparked something, what was next? So probably then, um, well, I'd become quite insulated and, you know, I wouldn't leave the farm much at that stage so I was probably lucky I had a really good TFR at that stage um, uh, we grew 8 years of beet that first year and that went really well with the cattle 
So that kind of just got us on that. That's something we could actually do things that kind of took back a bit of control. Um, so, yeah, we started off that 10, 8 hectares a beat, and then Craig after that, um, or I put in 10 hectares of loose in. We didn't really know what we were going to do with it at that stage. It was just going to be for baggage. Um, and then that was kind of, we were thinking we needed a bit of loose in baggage for the beat at that stage, I think. Yeah. It was, and then it, um, yeah. So that was a, a little stepping stone of confidence in that you were taking back a little control and some crop options looked like they might be available to you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, it was just knowing someone kind of probably had your back or someone was, hmm. yeah. So you just had a, a little bit of encouragement just to... So Lawn Peaks, a, a reasonably large operation, you had, how many hectares of flats and, and hill have you have you got? Yeah, um, so it were a partial lease, but so about 5,600 hectares, the whole thing. And nowadays we'd have about 1,500 cultivated and another 2,000 hectares of reasonably warm overstone on top of Hill. Um, when we go back 10 years ago, we, oh, um, we'd gone through that stage. Dad had stopped putting fertiliser on in the 19... 1990 so until 10 years ago we hadn't flown any super on and um, average pHs were 5.2 P levels were 8 to 10 um, stock wise and well sorry well, getting back to the cultivated area 10 years ago we were probably sitting around about 800 hectares so we've almost doubled the cultivatable area and the, the good oversown hall with the fertility that we've increased is yeah, so it's just a it's a building momentum all the time. Yeah, so so we'll we'll, we'll go with the momentum theme there. So, um, ten years ago, was there a chance, or, or it sounded like you were getting to a point where momentum was actually hard to build? You, you couldn't see your way. Yeah. To where that momentum was going to come from. Yeah. So that was probably the game change for us was the fodder beat let us actually grow out our replacement young stock on the. Uh, cattle side and then we had a bit of an accident with the bull and we ended up getting into here for mating and that went really well so then we once we had a little bit of loose in there I think we could see the potential that that was where we were falling down on the sheep side that we just couldn't get any momentum because we just couldn't grow out a a decent new hogger and at that stage we come across fellow Chris Mulvaney and um uh we were trying to, we had hoggets going into winter at 38 kilos and they're coming out of winter at 38s and we were mating them at 60s and it, it just wasn't working. So that was where the, the, I think that was the bit that just flipped the, the, the game changer there was having the loose end to grow the young stock out and then once we had decent young stock going onto the hill, um, it, it's taken a few years but it's built momentum because now we've got better capital stock getting better so it's almost like a gold, you know, the lucerne in itself may not have paid for itself, but it's let us extract so much more value out of the rest of the farm. Um, so yeah, look, yeah, look, um, yeah. So if if we go go back to this development and and from you know more than ten years ago, I guess the start of the fodder beat and lucerne, the start of you getting some confidence. Um, that was the sort of the genesis of, of, of the changes that happened. 
Um, so can you go from, from there? Is What were your um, thought processes around where you would start with, with the change? Was it immediately more Lucerne or was it, um, did there need to be more investment in the hill country first? Or Yeah, well, um, until we built up, it was just gaining the confidence to, at that stage, it had been drummed into me that there was no money in the hill and flying through it on that was a waste, bit of a waste of top money. Um, whereas we were putting that loose in and, and we could actually see a, a dollar return after two or three years and um, so that was kind of where the money went. And the subdivision was the bit that we could really see a benefit, the grazing control, so that was another cab off the rank. And you kind of got to remember that 10 years ago there was just me and Dad here. So um, things had to be done reasonably simply and... Um, sorry, I'm probably getting away from... Yeah, no, yeah. that's all right. It's, it's that... Um, so we're talking about this... Because um, it's a really... Uh, it's been a development project and it still is a development project now. But it started off with you having to have some confidence to make a change. And, and we've talked about the fodder beat and, and perhaps the start of the Lucerne. When did you when did you get the idea of, of scaling this up and making it go faster? Um, did the money come first or did the confidence come first? Uh, well, the money's always been there. The, the, there's, we've got a, there's a fair bit of equity there. It was just that we never had the cash flow to actually service additional debt. So at those first couple of years, it was actually getting the confidence that should we, we can actually spend this money and it's going to generate a return and pay for itself. And then it takes two or three years of that. And then... Um, and then at that stage, I think I had my accountant, we had a meeting and he said, well, you know, at the, the rate you're doing this, this is going to be a 30-year project, whereas you've got the money in the bank. And so tell us, faith, tell us about that wider team then, Matthew. So you, um, obviously it's been a real family farm, but then you've included maybe some of the inputs of others. Uh, how's that journey gone for you? Yeah, so that was probably, that was probably, probably when I look back, if I take another step back, we got onto that Lucerne and we got to around about 200 hectares and things were going pretty good. And then and then we just, I'm uh, trying to remember what the stumbling block. I think I got a bit carried away at that stage and put too many U's on and we had a, a U number, a percentage come back and we couldn't finish lambs. So things were going really good and then we just had a couple of pretty flat years, climate probably too. And at that stage I kind of recognised what I did last time was... Um, come back into myself and I just didn't talk to people so um, at that stage Graham Butcher brought a, a discussion group around and they were pretty interested in it all and Graham got pretty keen on what we were doing and probably at that stage I was getting pretty disillusioned with it and almost ready to, to throw the, the whole Lucerne thing in and go and try something different um, just the deaths and lambs and just yeah um, so Graham, he got pretty keen, and so I'll probably, he was, um, I probably seized upon that as a way of getting, again, getting someone else involved and just trying to kickstart it again, and those relationships, I'd probably neglected a few of them before, in the couple of three years after we kickstarted things off, so then I kind of saw the Innovation Farm as a chance of getting, pulling a lot of those people onto farm, people I normally, I wouldn't have had the confidence to go and ask. And then out of that innovation farm now, 
on our farm, we've actually, we're just in the process now of getting a, a an advisory board together. So we're trying to stop me from lapsing back into old habits and just getting a circle of people around that. So at the moment we've got, and a lot of it's come out of the Innovation Farm too. So Graham Butcher and George Collier with financial experience and we've got an independent chair we're just trying to find now. So it's just... Again, it comes back to to do, to do some of this system change. You've actually got to know someone sitting behind you that's actually got your back or actually... Because you can get a long way down and then you you can just lose belief a little bit. Mm. So, yeah. So the power of the team. The power of the team. Yeah. Surrounding yourself with people who are actually um, adding value or not even adding value, just... Um, yeah, they're, they're, yeah, they're getting something out of it, and you're getting something out of it, and it's just a real hmm. common purpose. And, it, and that's given you a chance to uh, progress the way you have. Yeah, so that's probably the bit that's added real momentum now. And it, we're instead of doing it over thirty years, we've got five year horizons, and um, it's given me the confidence to go to the bank and say, "Well, look." Actually, we can capitalise some of this development and do it a bit quicker. So, if you went, if we say, uh, go back five years and then said, if I said to you five years ago, Matthew, uh, you're going to have all of this production um, that you've got now, um, what what parts would you have absolutely not believed possible? Uh, oh, I'm just this this calendar year now. Well, we're going to kill well, ten, just about eleven thousand lambs at twenty kilo average. Um, if you go back five years, we're selling four, five thousand store lambs at probably an average live weight at thirty-two. Um, cattle, um, you know, uh, this season being we had a ninety-something percent hit rate, beef EQ hit rate in the steers at three hundred thirty kilos. Well, ten years ago we were killing. Well, we weren't even we weren't killing a cattle beast. We were selling them forward store in July at four hundred kilos. Um, or just the this year, just at the moment, just um, the number of you know. I, I probably really need to sit down and work out the kilograms per hectare. But um, well, it sounds to me like there's a massive shift, and you wouldn't have believed yourself. No, no, and uh, it's actually just been in the last year that we've actually just just got there, and everything's just come together. It's just taken a long time to get the fertility there. Um, just even in the last year, the the, um, the number of cattle we're going to kill off this place is going to be double. Um, so, so it, what are the key things that have allowed that change in 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 production? So, probably um, look, I'll probably go back to basics first. The, the subdivision and fertility, and then the big plus we've got out of the innovation farmers just recognising how much the legume actually drives our whole system. Um, so we started off with the loose urn and now we're uh, experimenting with the subclover and even on the hill country, just getting that fertility in there and changing our grazing management to get the legume to really drive our system. So, so the that, right plant in the right place somewhat, Matthew? Yeah, absolutely. Like bloody... Uh, um, um, with this air farm, air, uh, we always saw it as a 
a weakness of our farm because we had really cold south faces and really dry stony soils and um, that's actually by planting the right thing in the right place and you having the right stock policy to we can actually turn all that into a strength. So some of those, the, our dry, uh, those cold, high faces is actually what really drives the profitability in our cow herd now. And the dry stony flats, it's been ideal for lucerne, so that's essentially parked a finishing farm there for us. Um, and we're lucky with our, some of our salt loams that they sit on, they're pretty free draining, so they grow really good fodder beet without much mud, so it's a really good area to finish cattle in the winter. So it's just just divvying up the property and the soil types and the aspect and the to what grows best where and why stops need to be there at certain times. And then um, probably something else I've got from Graham Butcher is actually looking at each stock class and saying, well, does it actually make money or are we just doing that for for the sake of it? And does it actually fit with when we're growing feed on this farm? So um, it's building a whole lot of flexibility into the farm system, whether it's, yeah, hmm. um, just being really flexible in our thinking and just questioning why we're actually doing even the basics. Hmm. Um, yeah. So if, if we were to ask you, and this is probably a hardest question and... and uh, um, but I'll ask it anyway. If you were to um, rank the relative importance of the irrigation versus the lucerne or the let's call a legume conversion, yeah. what would the relative importance be of each of those two? Well, you could. Look, we've done an exercise here where we've ranked them on on um, return on investment, and the irrigation isn't actually that flash compared to the lucerne. The lucerne is probably a 30-40% return and a payback of two or three years. Um, the irrigation, 15-20% and hopefully I'll have it paid off by the time my kids go farming. But probably the... So the lucerne been, has been... And in hindsight now, given what I know now, my best money I could spend was actually on the fertility and the subdivision on... Um, because that allowed us to do the grazing management to get more light and get a bit more legume. So at the time, I probably didn't realise why it was working, but looking back now... Um, so in hindsight, the whole development has probably got the best return, but to kick the whole system going, we needed a, a little finishing farm at the front to get a replacement stock to target weight. So the Lucerne, even though it probably wasn't as good a return as the hill country... That was what's kick-started it all, and then it's let us get into it, yeah. It's like a great big jigsaw puzzle fitting it together, Matthew. Yeah, yeah, there's what, yeah. It's just being restrained enough to... So in hindsight, some of the least profitable stuff we've done is whole country cultivation. Um, in hindsight, that's something that should have come more towards the end, and we probably wasted a lot of time up there doing that because grass grub and everything else... Um, so yeah, it's these lessons learned that what seems obvious at the time, um, and again, it's the, it comes like that confidence thing. You've actually got to try a little bit to see whether it works, um, rather than I use that hill country cultivation that we were kind of committed, and that was a six or seven year process that we we just whereas if we we didn't know whether it was going to work or not, but we're that far into it, we were committed. Um, so yeah. 
that's the problem with a lot of these things. There's a, a, a long lag before you see the result. And, um, and for, fortunately with Lucerne, that's a two or three year and you see the result, whereas Hull Country, it's a three or four year and then all of a sudden it hits and away you go. Mm, mm. Um, yeah. You were saying, um, and, we were, and when we were talking uh, earlier about how parts of the farm have come through strong at, at times, like after maybe two or three years after you've done some uh, uh, some fer- uh, fertiliser or lifting fertility on the hill, that'll be a real strength. And then there'll be a period where the flat has gone through maybe a sub-clover development and then it's very strong for a while, and then it wanes a little, and uh, the seesaw battle a little. Yeah, so probably the, w- there's no, on this place, no year is the same, so we still haven't reached our equilibrium. So your sub-clover example, you stick sub-clover in, and it grew a heap of feed for this first couple of years, but we weren't quick enough to adjust our stocking rate to to graze it properly, so... We lost a little bit of quality, and now that we've got the the stocking rate to where it should be, it's just you never quite know when you stick something in whether what the stocking rate should be. Um, and then it's we've yeah it's through a couple of stock managers we've each stock manager has a different perception on where stock do well on this farm, and it kind of goes. Um, well, initially we got a real hit on our oversale on tussock flats when they first got fertility and we got a real flush of clover. And that's where our heavy lambs come from. On the hill, it hadn't seen fertiliser, so it was very brown top dominant and it cheap hand and just, it wasn't, yeah. Whereas, and then three or four years ago, that swapped around because we started putting a bit of fruit on the hill, stock were happier. And we got clover weevil through the flats and we lost a lot of our flat, uh, clover and got inefficient. And then a couple of years after that, we sprayed a lot of scrub out on the hill with meat, lost all our clover, so the sheep didn't do very well there, but we had stuck the sub clover on the flats. So, it, yeah, it, yeah. The emphasis changed, changed. In, in the farm. And it's still in the development phase. Matthew, you've got more ahead of you still yeah well yeah it's probably a different priority now because if you'd asked me 10 years ago environmental stuff wouldn't have featured in the conversation whereas now um there's a lot of repairing stuff we're running so it's and repairing stuff and um biodiversity is probably featuring more in what we're doing now and shout abouts and animal welfare there's a lot of stuff that We've, we spent money on fertility fencing that gave us a return and our infrastructure hasn't caught up. So yards and staff houses and um, shoutabouts and, uh, yeah. So more of a, I guess the production's got to come first and then uh, and then you've got, you, that gives you the opportunity to, to uh, invest more broadly in your, inter, in, in, your, in your business. Yeah, we're probably at the stage where we, we, we know we can grow the grass. It's just refining how best to utilise that feed or just so we're more in a systems phase now we're trying to figure out how to to it sounds like you've been in a systems phase because it's evolving all the time what about go back to the clover or the management of legume to benefit the legume or to benefit the the production system where were you getting uh, your help from there or were you learning it yourself along the way through Uh, yeah 
Um, I tend to do a fair bit of my own reading on the internet or places like that, and um, at times I've got pretty frustrated with some of the fertiliser advice I've been given, um, and then you'll get a little gem from someone. So um, Molly here, I was told for years, you're putting on too much, so much lime, don't put Molly on. Um, that first year we put Molly on, the, the kick in clover was just phenomenal. Um, sulphur, the pH, um, and as far as getting the legume in there, so the, the loose one's pretty simple. You, you, there's a TFO there. It's the, the, the grazing management. So I've probably been lucky in the way Dad's always brought me up was we do always done a lot of hoof and tooth and um, it's just we never really had the subdivision to do it properly. Um, and probably I've probably been lucky too that we've had a different neighbours come into the valley and a different way of doing things. So it's you're always quite useful observing what goes on over the fence. And can I can I ask? I guess um, when you're saying that you like retreated into yourself uh, for a period of time. Um, at that stage, you wouldn't have been looking to take on new ways of doing things. What was the, the stimulus? So you, now that it sounds like you're ready to take it, looking over and seeing what neighbours are doing, and only picking the eyes out of information on the internet and from other people that come into your sphere, mm-hmm. um, what's changed to give you the confidence to take on uh, new ways of doing things? Um. I'm, you know, I've got a pretty, I probably didn't realise it, but, well, Shona wasn't quite on the scene then either, so a pretty supportive family with mum and dad and Shona there, and um, early on we changed our accountant, and I've got a bit more ruthless in who I do business with now, if, if they're a bit of a leech, I can't be bothered with that, um, they've actually got to be have my best interests at heart and um, you know I'll go out of the way to look after them too but it's got to be a two way thing um, and yeah it's I don't know how do you how do you break that cycle because it becomes a self mm. that's the key thing, thing it's the moments that you think of and I think you've shared some of those moments with us um, you've made use of um, some outside advice um, I believe you did a Farmax model on the property in the early days um, just just to see if this whole development would have some wheels? Yeah, so that was probably a benefit of the innovation farm was that wouldn't, wasn't something I would have done off my own bat um, but we when we were looking at how to grow cattle quick um, it was, we kind of had to do a stock take of where we were at and the, the place had kind of got to that point where me doing it in my head and, oh yeah, okay, our feed supply is roughly going to look like that and this is how much stock. We're, we're, we're just growing beyond that. Um, so that farmax modelling, that's been, that's re- really challenged some of our assumptions about what, what made us money and why we're doing things at some certain times of the year. And it's given us the confidence to, to feed our ewes better in late lactation or... Um, uh, we've had, we've done some things in our cattle side of it that there's a bit of a 
the general consensus that you make money off stairs finishing for the second winter, but when we've plugged it into our Farmax model, um, finishing off beat in that second winter is just as if not more profitable. So, um, yeah, it's... It's, yeah. So. so maybe we'll just go on to the uh, innovation farm program because that's what we were fast. We were talking about uh, growing beef animals faster and also having their EQ hit rate um, looked at as well. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe describe what your beef system was like for us, and then um, and then some of the progress that's made on that's been made on the way through, and what part the legumes played. Uh, uh, on the way through yeah so um started the innovation farm we were, we were pretty traditional breeding and finishing we'd got to a breeding and finishing unit by that stage and we'd, we were probably three years into heifer mating um so we'd come off a pretty traditional hereford um herd uh, we had about about a bvd through Oh, that was at the start of heifer mating, and I think we were at calving percentage that it was 60%. Um, so, again, that's another... Sometimes you've got to hit rock bottom to actually go, well, shit, this really isn't working, and just, I need to do something different. Um, so, there. Um, so, and then from then, we, we kind of got into the heifer mating by accident before the innovation farm. Just, there was a... a a rig ended up with the heifers and that was they carved a right so we couldn't see any reason not to whereas I wouldn't have actually and I had this conversation with the farmer the other day he was saying well got these beautiful heifers but I don't you know should I make them as a heifer or not or and it was kind of just how to give them the confidence to go and give it a go and it might work it might not it's just so there's, we've been lucky that sometimes we've just been forced into, or by accident something's happened. So you were traditionally a store sale um, beef system? If, if we went back 10 years ago, this farm was running 200 cows. Um, we might have been selling 100 and, 150, 400 kilo, rising two steers and heifers, and that was it. Um, started it, well, at the moment now, we're, we've got a Hereford Angus Cross herd around about 430 cows. Um, we're 10 years ago, we were calving over four cycles. Now we're getting 95% scanning calf in two cycles. Um, our heifer mating, we're actually over-mating our heifers. Um, so, but we're only mating heifers for 30 days. So I think, from what I've read and from what I've observed in this farm, that's giving us, it's selecting animals that are maturing earlier and better lifetime performance so it's actually um so on that side of it there's 120 heifers will carve down and majority of them will go back into the herd um and so there's not many dry heifers that we we kill most of them in the autumn now around about 270 to 80 kilos and the steers um we kind of have a we have a benchmark now they have to be 450 kilos on the first of may and then they go into fodder beat for at least 100 days and we'll kill them off beat at 330 kilo average. So, so quite a change in, in that production system. How did you involve uh, legumes in it? What part does le- a legume play in that growth pathway? So 
that was kind of that was the motivation initially for getting into the innovation farm was that we thought where we were going to make money was trying to finish those steers before the second winter. So we thought if we could get more legume into them when they were calves, they'd grow quicker and um, would get to that weight. Whereas as it's evolved through the innovation farm, the our beef cross weren't the best as animal to go into that legume. But where it has, the legume has really worked in that finishing system there is that um, we used to wean late in late April, we're about a tenth of October mean calving date. We've pulled down weaning date right forward to around about the 10th of March, or quite early. And whether the legume works there is that we've got these red and white clover paddocks with a bit of tetraploid. Uh, we can wean those calves and they go on there and it just gets the rumen and the gut really going and they get a really good lift for that first six weeks before they go onto fodder beat. So it just sets them, makes that transition onto fodder beat a bit earlier. A bit easier, I mean, sorry. And then equally at the other end, um, when our heifers and steers come off beat, um, the heifers, we, we, we've got a target of around about 350 to kilos to the bull. So we, even though they've been on beat through the winter, um, we're still a little bit behind. So they go back onto those red and white paddocks and we pump them through until the bull goes out to about fortnight after the bull goes in with them. And then that gives us the capacity then. That then lets the... The in-calf heifers, they go out to the hill when they're a, a topping mob because they've already been grown out. And the R2 steers, instead of having to feed them all through the summer, they become our topping mob too. So then they actually take, play second, second fiddle to the cows and calves. They come in in front of the steers and that means we can then get a better wiener calf out of them. And they also, that's partly why we're getting such good conception rate in the cows is that by the steers playing second fiddle to them through December, January and the bulls with them, those cows are they're not up with playing with the bulls. So it's the obvious solution sometimes isn't the, the actual solution you land to. Mm. Um, so, so, yeah. So some of the changes to this beef system have evolved um, while the innovation farm program has been progressing and perhaps some of the decision-making around how that beef system could be tweaked and changed has been discussed within that steering group as well. So the focus hasn't been necessarily just making the animals grow faster or hit a target. The whole system actually has to be um, taken into account. Yeah, so that's probably where I... When we first did the the, the looser and we got to about 200 hectares, that's where I come unstuck because at that stage I was just focusing on growing the looser and, and I hadn't really thought about the system change. And actually, to unlock the whole benefit out of the lucid, it's it's a whole system change. Everything on the farm has changed to make that work. So, probably the bit I didn't say before, what's actually made our beef system work is actually the fact we've got all this lucid in there, that that's taken a heap of lambs and hoggets off good country, stuck that on lucid, and that's freed up all that... So, we're not putting those beef calves on lucid, but it has freed up all that red and white clover. So it's a it's a little bit off to the side, but it yeah. Um, but you're in the innovation thing. So what we initially we thought, well, well we're just going to do this with stairs, and the solution is to put these rising two stairs onto Lucerne, and that's going to solve our problems. Um, that first year we we did that, and we killed quite a few at blow. 
Um, so at this stage, in the background, um, uh, anyone who knows Full Tither or Graham Butcher will know that Frisian Bulls come into the discussion and that's something we haven't done. Um, and probably at that stage, I was thinking Lucerne was going to solve all my climate problems, um, which it actually didn't. It's actually the system that goes around the Lucerne that solves it. And the Frisian Bull thing, there's that much flexibility in that system, how you run it, that that on its own is actually what solved our climate problem or reacting you know having a, a dry summer so that was was that the second year of innovation farm we thought we'd do some balls um so um so that's this that's the beef system that actually is really using the the legume so the first year we got all these hundred day bull calves and come christmas time we it was we we, we did them too tough up to christmas we didn't realize how that they had to be on licorice and good stuff till then so a little bit behind when they went on to Lucerne and we lost a few on the Lucerne that year to bloat in hindsight we learned a lot like as in just how 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 not to kill them and bloat so um, it was a lot of misadventure they'd knock a bullcock out and the the Peter dispenser that was giving them bloat oil diluted it so they'd die and they didn't get them measure or we thought mowing was going to be the solution and just our farm doesn't lend itself to that with stones and stuff so um and that first year i think we really underestimated how much grazing management had to play on preventing bloat so, so can you dig into that a little bit more matthew what are the key elements that you've found in grazing management uh, that can reduce the incidence of bloat so the key one is, and the, the, this learning from our, the beef cattle has actually helped us on our sheep too, is that you you absolutely have to shift them half a day or a day before you actually think they need shifted. So um, just to keep them full all the time. And you need to be looking a little bit in, ahead of yourself. So if you think next tomorrow is going to be a wet, cold day, but they don't need shifted till tomorrow, you're better off just shifting them today so you're not shifting them onto a fresh paddock that coincides with a cold southerly shift or a, an overcast day. Um, so that residual... So, But to make that work, is actually it's really nice to have another mob of cattle coming along to clean up the residual behind them. Um, and then you can, you can cheat a little bit in a co-grazing situation so we can... We can when we're transitioning our bulls, we can stick lambs through a paddock and take a little bit of the best out of it, out of it, and then we'll stick the bulls in with them and kind of a. So we're we're getting a little bit of the lush stuff out, but this was probably one of our the counterintuitive things that we learned that that first year we thought the longer the lucerne was, the the less lush it would be. Um, but then we did some tests and what, just observing what the cattle were doing, they were actually just wrapping their finger around the, the hard stalk, stripping all the leaf off, and they weren't getting any fibre out of the stem. So it was a bit of a leap of faith, but the next year, instead of putting them onto 30 centimetre lucerne, we were doing them on 20 centimetre lucerne, quite lush stuff. But when they were getting a mouthful, they were getting stem and leaf, they had no choice in what they were eating. So what they were actually consuming actually had more fibre in it than what we thought was the solution. So 
Um, so that was another key part of the grazing management, just, just speeding the rotation up a little bit more so we were getting onto it, that short lush stuff. But then as anyone who knows with lucerne, it, well, particularly in our situation, if we go 28, well, 20, 30 days without rain, our lucerne stops. So because we've got quite limited soil moisture holding capacity in our soil, so it's all very well setting yourself up for a 28-day round but if you don't get rain, you've got to have some other contingency to to, to cope with that. So um, we've uh, this the year just been we've had a bit more grass around us, and this has been the the benefit of having the sub paddocks that we they went in two years ago, is that now we can we can bounce them out to the sub paddocks if we have to, and um, we're reluctant to do it because the longer they stay on the looser and their rumens adjusted to the loosen, so they, they grow quicker. But to get a bit of fibre in, to bounce them out to a, the sub-paddock, it's still high in, in legume, but it just balances them up a bit. Um, and then just other simple stuff, like she, uh, don't shift them with a dew on the paddock. Shift them after lunch is usually, you know, um, when there's a bit of heat. Um, and you've always got your indicator animals in the mob too, so... So tell us a little bit more about the indicator animals, uh, Matt. Did you find that some were repeat bloat offenders that you could uh, that you could uh, scale the the uh, risk off somewhat? Yeah, yeah. There's one or two in the mob that you uh, you always watched if they they were indicating if they they were blowing out a bit on the left, you knew the rest of them were gonna. Um, that particularly in that first year when we lost, I think we lost eight or nine to bloat. Um, we did get quite gun shy, so we were watching them all the time. Whereas in the year just been, um, we actually went through probably six weeks where we lost no calves, so we actually got pretty, pretty, um, a bit blase about watching those indicator animals. Um, yeah. So, so in terms of bloating on on the lucerne, what is what is the thing that surprised you most about the the risk? Um, or, or, or what what surprised you as being the the most risky thing that beforehand you hadn't really realised? Well, we'd always probably thought weather played a role, um, but just what why the weather was seemed to influence bloat, and I think where we've got to now is just observing the animals. Just the the it's not actually doing anything to the plant itself. It's more on how the animal's grazing or um, its inclination to, to stop grazing for a couple of hours because it's too hot and then you get a cold subtly change that increases its feed demand and it goes and gorges itself or um, yeah. but, but even just knowing that you've got to be on the ball you can't afford a, to step off step yeah yeah so it's grazing management it, it comes back to that again so I, um, it's it is just so you did try, um, so you've had bloat oil through a pita dispenser. Um, you, there was flax oil uh, used for a period of time. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about that? So that was quite useful that second year. Um, so the, reason, the first year we actually put um, remnants and capsules in the stairs, but we didn't want to go down that route the second year because the, the indication from the processor was antibiotics and that wasn't going to give us market access so we wanted to try something other than remensum so that first year we bloat oil was going through the peter dispensers because we can't put 
those citrons in because we've got house houses on all our stock water supplies. And um, another suggestion was um, vegetable oil because it sits in the room and, and stops the froth from from forming. Um, so that first year it was quite useful. The cattle, if we if we went out and saw indicator animals with a lot of really blowing up, if we put a heap of blow into the trough, they wouldn't drink it. Whereas as soon as we tipped four or five litres of vegetable on, and that just sat on top, they drank the trough dry. So the if you had a problem, the vegetable was really useful just to get animals to drink a lot of water and get a lot of bloat oil into them really quick. So when you say vegetable oil? Flaxseed oil. It was the cheapest one out there. And it was a 200 litre drum, I think it was $4 a litre. Um, through transition, it was really useful for just getting the calves used to the taste of the bloat oil in the trough and just getting them accepting of it. Um, so they kind of they kind of drink it, but it gets stuck in their snout and they lick it off. Um, so that was a challenge. After the second year, you kind of that sheen. The first, unfortunately, we were running bulls, and I know we shouldn't, but in two bigger mobs. So in a mob of three hundred and fifty bulls, the first hundred would get their little dose of vegetable oil, and then the sheen would be off the troughs, and then the last two hundred wouldn't. So what we for the for the third year of the project, we had a we designed a little venturi, um, venturi fitting to go over the trough valve that would actually suck the oil out and put it into the trough. Because the problem with the vegetable oil, we can't put that through a, a peter dispenser because it doesn't mix it mix with water. So um, so there's two little separate. They're both complementary, and um, this year just been we we actually got away with just bloat oil. Um, we again it was just simple things that tripped up stuff in the second year now when a mob of bulls goes into the paddock the trough gets cleaned um, and we're putting two pet of dispensers in a trough just as a bit of a fail safe um, if it rains heavily the night before that will actually take the the calves out of the paddock if we're going to get puddles of water in there that they drink out of instead of the trough um, and uh yeah. So you, the role of the vegetable oil is more of a uh, helping the calves become accepting of bloat, oil, bloat oils in the trough, being able to you know, transition onto it. Yep. Um, and also, uh, it was the way that you could treat a, a subclinical or, a, or a just a mild bloat case um, and get something into the animal that is going to hopefully reduce the the stability of the foaming um, so that's going on in the room. If if we're observing an indicator animal there that's got a bit of bloat in it, well, and it's a high bloat, you know, it's an overcast day or a bit of a southerly change, or we're seeing animals with bloat, then the quick fix is to go and throw a bit of vegetable in there and really get the just increase the intake of water and get a bit more bloat all in it. So it's a it's a something in the toolbox that comes out when things aren't really going right mm. but then equally at the start just to get them onto that bloat oil it's been speeds up that transition too um so has, has there been any reluctance of the animals to actually drink that vegetable oil as opposed to water itself or oh no no i think it's like a it's almost a lolly it's an inducement it's a lolly mm-hmm. yeah they do they um oh that night i remember going out one night and 
we'd lost two calves, I drove to the paddock and I saw, well, two, was it two or three dead calves? And I was looking at other cars really blowing up and I thought, oh shit, I've really got a problem here. And I think I had a 20 litre of vegetable on the back of the truck and I just, I'd, I'd tip in two litres at a time, they'd drink the trough dry and then they'd wander away and then as soon as they saw you sat putting more, and this is 40 calves crowded in as much as they could into a trough and... Um, Sounds and, like lolly water. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, but just in, in the concept of having a toolbox for bloke, I guess uh, Matthew's sort of evolved a bit, um, and, and the confidence grows when you know that you've got some tools there that you can use, and the power of experience over time would mean that you'd have more confidence than most in your ability to manage uh, a fairly high octane pasture with cattle. Yeah, so I'm probably fortunate, you know. Coming back to what your strength, turning some of your weaknesses into strengths, I suppose. But being a family-owned place, I haven't got anyone I'm answerable to, so I can probably take one or two more risks. Um, so until, if we hadn't had those few mistakes in that second year and learnt from those mistakes, we wouldn't have got to where, where we are now. Um, so that second year really taught us just how far we could push the boundaries before we had to step back. And now that we've, well, probably, we've, we know how far we can push it. Mm. But until you push that boundary, you can't actually know. Mm. So there's a bit of a, you know, that's a, yeah, no, I, I, no one likes seeing dead animals. And so to push the boundaries, it's probably, it's not that terribly acceptable. But you've just, it's a learning that sometimes for the benefit of that animal you've yeah I, I sort of I guess the analogy would be motor racing over time the, the cars have become designed to be very safe uh, in the in the case of the, of the crashes but that's a sort of a trial and error thing as well um, uh, a bit extreme I guess as an example but uh, in, in terms of the bloating um, for the animals we've got we've, you've got a real list there of, of, of things that you've found that have worked and, and in particular the ones that resonate with me are the shifting of the animals in time I like the the situation where the, uh, you, you expected that the animal would be in taking more fibre by leaving it a little longer and then they put their, wrapped their tongues around and stripped off the good stuff and ended up taking even less fibre in mm-hmm. so the idea of going in uh, and, 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 and shifting the animals more regularly, being very careful of, of cold or, or changes of weather particularly, uh, and then having in the toolbox the, um, the bloater oils and being able to use two dispensers, cleaning the troughs so that the animals are, are actually accepting of, of that sort of water. There's a lot of lessons in there that probably have been written down before, but uh, it's great to see them come back up to the to the fore. What about the Venturi system? Is that something that's commercially available for farmers or is it something that you had moved uh, to try and do during the project? No, no, that was kind of a... Well, between me and Graham, we, we thought we couldn't see any reason why it wouldn't work. Um, and we, uh, we got a little cheap Chinese one that looked like it was going to work. So then... That was part of the innovation farm. They actually, we got a fellow in Invercargill to actually design a proper system that can be hooked up. It'll either go onto a cam lock or underneath a ball valve easily, and it's all protected in there, and it's just a very simple system to, yeah. So is that now commercially available at all for farmers? No, well, no, but if, 
it's a pretty simple design. Hmm. Yeah, there's no reason why. Yeah, no, it's not. I don't. It probably is somewhere out there. I just couldn't find anyone. Who's so I guess the other lesson around bloat was that there is actually no real cure for it. It's a risk that's able to be managed to a large degree. Probably not completely 100%, but what, if, if, if I was up to ask you, what percentage do you believe that you can control bloat? Uh, yeah, okay. I've got where more, where I've would got, you get to? Now, I've got more confidence on being able to control my bloat issue on lucerne than what I have controlling my clostidial problem on lucerne. So we're losing more lambs to clostidials, and we thought we were, you know, we're on a five-in-one program, lambs are getting multiple five-in-ones, and probably a good, again, innovation firm, we've got all these good people around us. Um, so a side benefit unrelated to what the topic was, was we started looking at our lambs and going, well, we shouldn't be losing five a day. Um, we've now to do something about the bloat and cattle, we can control that. So that, um, and that was a, a reason, relatively simple change going to Kavixin, um to a 10 and 1 on their lucerne, and that's solved some of that. But, um, you know, we've lost more, more cattle in the last year to nitrate poisoning on young grass. Um, it's. I think it's just as manageable as controlling your fodder beat and not lo- losing cattle on fodder beat, gorging there, or uh, I think it's just one, another risk factor that. Yeah, and it, it's a manageable, manageable risk factor. So you're not scared to put them on a on a highly dominant legume paddock if you follow your rules. Rules, yeah. And probably the other the other bit that I didn't touch on. Well, I alluded to it before. Now, this year just been, when those 100-day calves turned up here, they went on to straight red and white paddocks. So they, they had a month, six weeks, before they went on to lucerne on pretty high-octane stuff, but just not quite as potent as lucerne. So it's just thinking about how to, to get those bugs and all the rest of it, transition that rumen. Um, so I, I, whether that, how much of a factor that was this year, but it just... It, those young animals, whether it's, they just seem to be a lot more forgiving. I do remember coming to a, 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 one of the steering group days and you did have the young bulls out on a particularly lush paddock of red and white clover and there were a few raised eyebrows in the steering group but you had the confidence by that stage in being able to monitor and feed those animals uh, so that you got great production out of them without losing sleep around blood. Possibly sometimes ignorance is bliss, so we probably didn't realise quite. That was early on in the project, and um, yeah, so probably we didn't quite realise how how much we were exposed at that stage, but we were getting away with it. So, um, and the rules have sort of come in, and and you've cemented them since then in, in your shift time, so that there's no dew on the ground, and how you go about it, making sure they're always full. Um, have come in as, as as more they have to be in place otherwise you do expose yourself to more risk absolutely yeah yeah so that's all and there's but there's other stuff we could have done that just doesn't hasn't suited this farm but there's no reason why it wouldn't suit another farm um we should, yeah so matthew I, we're uh, getting near at the end of our time i realize um so can i ask you what does it mean for you being an innovation farmer 
What has it given you that you yeah. may not have had? So I could say to you the financial reward that, you know, we've now got a business that's doing, I think last year was 4.5% return on assets. That's not all sold down to the innovation farm, but it has contributed. I think what the innovation farm has actually given me is all that, that network of people and the confidence to actually go, you know, we want to do something different every year now and it's given us the confidence to actually speed all this up and just how far can we actually push the boundaries. So um, it's more in the the that change management or the, the accepting that next year is going to be different to this year. So Is this level of change that you have achieved only available to top farmers or, or can or do you think it's just getting the confidence to to make small changes and then make those small changes bigger changes? Uh, if you look well yeah, if you look back where we were ten years ago, we were probably on our financial results and reproductive performance, we would have been bottom quartile somewhere there. Um, uh, yeah, the it was a pretty, you know, we weren't the tidiest farm in the district by a long shot. Um, so it is just a mind, it's just what that trigger is, what that kickstart to break that cycle because it, it's a, we're lucky enough now that we're in that cycle where the momentum's just building upon itself. Whereas 10 years ago, we were on the downward cycle where everything we did just reinforced, just we kept on getting further to the bottom. So, um, just what that trigger is, I. And uh, sometimes, we, yeah, yeah, I don't, yeah, don't know. It, it, it's not surrounding yourself with yeast people either. It's people that are actually going to tell you some home truths. Maybe I don't know. Um, so it's been a it's been a real journey. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. I think that's the the thing. And, and farmers um, generally can reach out, and and, and if they're uh, reaching out to the right people and uh, surround themselves with people with the right philosophy as well. Um, that these kind of uh, uh, changes are, are possible. Yeah. With the yeah. Right, with the right, you know, attitude and, and follow up. Sometimes I think sometimes you've actually just unfortunately, and it's you just got to reach a mm. pretty bloody miserable place to to get you push you over to accept that it. you've actually got to change. Otherwise, if you're sitting in a pretty comfortable place, well, why would you mm. take on something mm. different? Has it been rewarding? Uh, yeah, well, yeah. Look, I, I've got confidence now. We've got a, you know, we've got a future here now. Um, and I'm, I'm the first to admit I'm not the best guy on the day-to-day stuff. I'm kind of, the bit that I get the kick out of is the developing and the, the big picture stuff. So... I can sit there now and say we've actually got structures in place that I can leave this place to someone else to run and I can go and get on to the next challenge and mm. whatever, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, well done, Matthew and, and Shona and, and uh, we'll uh, draw things to a close there and uh, yeah, thanks for your time and uh, well done on your uh, innovation farm project but also the wider development of your farm. It's a real credit to you. Yeah. You and your team. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks.